everyone and welcome to the Unorthodoxy podcast. My name is Duncan Rayburn and this is episode 3 in our series on a murdered god and an exiled queen. You know the setup by now. God has been murdered, well apparently, and theology has gone into exile, which means that our theological info comes to us largely in fragments. To make sense of this crime scene, we're adopting the role of philosophical detectives. We're looking not just at the crime committed, but at the conditions that made the crime possible, as well as the consequences that we are now all living with. My aim is to provide you with some sense, albeit an incomplete sense, of how to navigate theology today without getting totally overwhelmed by the various contradictory perspectives that you will find pretty much everywhere. Certainly many of the issues we are confronted with and the problems we face are not entirely unique to us. When the writer of Ecclesiastes suggests that there is nothing new under the sun, he is not wrong. Human nature remains rather consistent, despite some of the more extreme global contextual shifts. This is why we can read even the most ancient texts and find, maybe with a little help of translating here and there, that they resonate with us as much as if they had been written yesterday. To me, what seems unique in our time, though, is the sheer magnitude of the complexity we are faced with, the sheer immensity of the apparent fragmentation. I once read, I can't remember exactly where, that around the turn of the first millennium AD in the year 1000, the average person on earth was likely to meet and interact with only 100 people in an entire lifetime. Some estimates have it that many of us today, thanks to the advent of global communications technology, will interact with close to 800 times that. That's around 80,000 people. And even if that's not quite right, the general principle is fairly commonsensical. If life was tougher in the year 1000 than it is now, and evidence certainly indicates that it was much more difficult in some ways than many of us can even imagine, It was still much simpler. The world was more predictable, more stable, and constant. I'm not saying that things are necessarily getting worse. It is extremely difficult, of course, to ascertain whether things are in fact getting worse or better. You'll have someone like Steven Pinker, who is on the whole, I think, a little bit too optimistic, but then you have others like Jonah Goldberg, who seems a little bit too pessimistic. Almost everyone, even in seeking to present a balanced point of view, is tempted to fall on one side of the opinion horse or another. Nietzsche was right to note that even philosophers, and I think we can include philosophical detectives like ourselves, will tend to end up writing autobiography instead of providing anything like clearly objective guidelines to understanding anything. This is a concern that we obviously need to be paying attention to. In practice, the tendency is going to be that we will read the messages of the exiled queen of the sciences in the light of our own preferences. And even if we cannot fully arrive at something like an objective theology, we can at least make a concerted effort not to be totally overtaken by the contingencies of our various subjectivities in this hyper-contingent contemporary world. It is easy to hypothesize, of course, that disunity was an ancient phenomenon too, that even when the queen was ruling from her throne rather than in hiding, her decrees were fraught with contradictions. 
But it turns out that a little historical archaeology has already unearthed some evidence that contradicts this hypothesis slightly, or at least gives it some qualification. Yes, of course, people have always disagreed with one another. Even in the New Testament, we have some examples of theological squabbling, sometimes in the text itself and sometimes in stories. And certainly, people have always interpreted theological messages differently, but it is a fairly recent, that is, modern idea that places contradiction and difference at the center of theological inquiry. There was a time when even heretics assumed that the fundamental point of departure and return was a unity, and that all of reality was rooted in something singular and whole. Chesterton writes of the ancient world that there was enough unity in those days that could ensure that even 100 people would be in perfect agreement with each other, whereas in our world every person is legion, kind of perpetually disagreeing with themselves. In the world today, we're all possessed by whole armies of demons, in a way. I've already suggested in the previous episode that certain material and technological conditions have rendered disunity more plausible, but there are quite a few theological shifts that have offered an apparently rational foundation for this world of fragments. I use the word rational there a little bit tentatively. This will be the primary hinge upon which the rest of our philosophical detective work will rest. The fact that there was a shift from one way of conceiving of being towards another. It was a shift from conceiving of being via analogy to conceiving of being via university. This shift took place in the medieval period in the late 1200s. And this is something quite contested in academic scholarship, of course, as most things are, and even my choice of those words, analogy and university, may appear scary to you at first. I'm not trying to scare you, um, and it will help you to know that the concepts are not all that difficult to grasp. First, let's look at the analogy of being. The basic idea is that when we talk of God existing and people existing, the word existing here is used in an analogous way. In other words, God's existence and our existence are parallel to each other. They have something in common, but they are not exactly identical. The word existence assumes that both God and us are real, but not in exactly the same way. God's reality and our reality are two entirely different planes of reality. This analogy of being, which has been absolutely stock standard for most of theological history, assumes that everything that exists gains its reality by participating in God. Everything is real, in other words, by virtue of its dependence on that which is dependent on nothing for its existence. So for theologians like Augustine and Anselm and Aquinas, God's reality is totally self-sustaining. God alone exists in and through himself. But creation, this world of things and animals and electric guitars and plum pudding, is real only because its reality is given to it by God. For Augustine, for anything to retain its reality, it must have an ongoing relationship with the ground of its being, and that would be God himself. But in all of this, the distinction between God and creation is maintained. An infinite interval between what God is and what everything else is remains. 
The analogy of being means that, for all their similarities, the parallel lines don't converge. You could see that interval between God's isness and the isness of creation as being a problem, of course. You could see anything as being a problem if you like. How can we know God if God is so utterly other from us and everything else? Doesn't this seem to make a kind of atheism inevitable? After all, God would seem in this view to be so inscrutable in his transcendence that any knowledge of God we would have would have to be couched in a kind of ignorance. Interestingly enough, the analogy of being is grounded in negative theology, which is something I've spoken on this podcast about before. All of this is a fair point, but theologians have grappled with it for long enough to know that it also kind of misses the point. We do not know primarily by understanding, but by being with. Thus the ancient understanding of sexual intimacy as knowing. You get a sense of the meaning of this kind of knowing by trying to explain the joy of eating chocolate to someone who has never even tried chocolate. The primary way of knowing chocolate is not through abstract descriptions like sweet, creamy, and heavenly, but by tasting and seeing that it is good. Even if God is inscrutable, we still know him as the foundational I am, namely infinite being itself, upon which our own existence and the existence of everything else rests. Our knowledge of God, then, is more like sexual intimacy or tasting chocolate than it is like knowing how to solve a mathematical equation. The doctrine of analogy doesn't take away conceptual knowledge completely, but subordinates it to participation, to love, and the sheer beauty and mystery and wonder of relationship. In this view, God can and does stoop to communicate himself through the finite world, and even takes on the form of a mortal man to communicate something, not everything, of his absolute being. But even then, the ground of our knowledge of God is in the intimacy of presence, although we may at times lose a sense of this presence. The shift away from the analogy of being is, many scholars agree, owed to a Franciscan thinker named John Duns Scotus. Scotus will feature quite a bit in our philosophical detective work because his theological innovations opened a way for the modern era and made it only inevitable that the queen of the sciences would be forced to flee, and I think also inevitable that we would start believing that God has been murdered. Scotus believed that the analogy of being didn't supply a sufficient foundation for thinking about being, so he proposed his theory of the university of being as a better foundation. I get that the phrase the university of being can sound unnecessarily academic and abstract, but the idea is rather simple. University means univocal, as in one voice or a single meaning, and being refers approximately to reality. So when I say, for example, that the chair I am sitting on is real and that I am real, the idea of being real has the same meaning for both the chair and for me. This, I'm sure, sounds rather dull and prosaic to you, but things get pretty interesting when we apply the same idea to thinking about God. If I say that God is real in the same way that the chair I am sitting on is real, which is real in the same way that I am real, I have to assume that God is no longer fundamentally different in his reality from everything else, including chairs and me. In other words, God becomes, in this univocal estimation, or univocal estimation, 
merely one being among other beings. Yes, God could still be a different kind of being, just as I'm a very different kind of being to the chair I am sitting on, thankfully. But from this univocal perspective, the nature of our reality is still the same. The implications of the shift in thinking are actually kind of earth-shattering. In one fell philosophical swoop, the whole of reality is split up into myriad disconnected little pieces, and the fundamental unity and intimacy of being is lost. If previously the transcendent being of God grounded all other being, Univocity ensures that now God becomes just one element in a reality comprised entirely of separate entities. Of course, since our fundamental engagement with God is not at this conceptual level, you might think that I may be overstating my case, but the truth is that our conceptual frameworks do shape what we find plausible to live with. And it seems to me, and a number of others, that this seemingly prosaic, simple conceptual shift from analogy to university makes it easier to live as if, in reality, the fragments are more real than the unity. Even if the analogy of being makes it difficult to conceive of the intimacy of God with creation, it nonetheless takes it as a given to be dwelt with. God is intimate with creation, that's the assumption, and this amounts to taking the whole of reality as a gift that is continually given out of this intimacy with the divine. The univocal posture towards being might appear at first to solve the issue of divine conceivability, but in fact it applies a wrecking ball to any possibility of knowing God. For one thing, God is thought of not as the most intimate reality of our reality, but as one thing among other things, albeit much further up on the great chain of being. God becomes like a divine celebrity, someone so remote and inaccessible that we have no real hope of communicating with him. The deist conception of God, a God who creates the world once upon a time rather than at every moment, becomes more plausible in in the light of this shift. Now, Scotus did seem to want to retain God's hierarchical superiority over everything else, which most would assume is a very good motivation. But in the process of developing this theology, he made God even more distant from us. And if God becomes remote, it's not all that difficult to believe that theology also works by remote control, or, as our story goes, by means of a queen in exile. In short, atheism has always been an existential possibility, given that God is invisible, but the university of being makes it much more plausible. According to the univocal stance, after all, being is not owed at every moment to the divine and and therefore always intimately entwined in God's presence, but is rather something that can exist independently from God. You might think that unifying everything in the universe through one way of speaking would create a sense of the interconnectedness of all things, to quote Douglas Adams. Well, this is the exact opposite of what has happened. The analogy of being said, everything is grounded in God, everything lives and moves and has its being in God. In other words, oneness comes first. Manyness is always secondary. Now, 
Scotus also names God as the priority and as first cause, but because his idea of the university of being says that God is one being among other beings, inevitably it is manyness that remains without any real unity in being. The paradox of university is that it proliferates difference. At the root of everything is not a fundamental unity, but a fundamental division between all things. You should be aware, though, that there are many who would disagree with this account that I've just given you. Some would say that to speak of Scotus's university of being as an ontology, that is a theory of, of what actually is, is a bit nonsensical. Scotus's argument is predominantly semantic. Well, maybe, but increasingly in my thinking about language, and that's a sub subject I'm going to come back to in more detail in the next episode, I have started to think that there is no such thing as mere semantics. Words reveal or conceal. They can heal and hurt. They can cause immense destruction or pave the way towards reconciliation. Even if words are not directly making claims about what is real, they nonetheless affect our perceptions of what is real. I do think that Scotus's argument makes way for perceiving disunity in a way that the analogy of being simply does not. It's not the only problem in this criminal investigation, obviously, but it certainly has a pretty potent role to play. In any case, university eradicates the possibility of a middle point between identity and difference. And that means that it opens up a way for an endless battle between the absolute and the relative. Not, no longer are these things relating to each other, but people are forced, in a sense, to kind of vacillate between one or the other. In other words, the university of being deeply affects the way that we mediate the world. I also know that, as many have argued, that the university of being, the seeing being as one thing, doesn't mean that analogy is totally eradicated. This may be true, but it still prioritizes the contingent over the necessary flashbacks to the previous episode, and that effectively, if not actually, makes being subservient to becoming. The university of being also paves way for one of the biggest modern errors, namely the idea of monocausality. In classical theism, there are two orders of causality, primary and secondary. God is the primary cause, the cause of being and of everything, and everything created operates in the realm of secondary causality. If we decide to go against this classical theist position and we adopt monocausality, we inevitably land up with the theological equivalent to the famous trolley problem. The general sketch of the trolley problem is this, most of you will know it. A runaway trolley is moving towards a number of people who are bound up and thus incapacitated as they lie on the railway tracks. You just happen to be next to the control lever that would allow the trolley to be switched to a different track. If you happen to pull that lever, the trolley will be directed onto the track and those tied up people will be saved. But this is an ethical dilemma because there is a person on that side track. So do you pull the lever? Well, in the theological trolley problem, thanks to monocausality, God is indirectly the cause of the runaway trolley and the whole scenario. 
He is, in a word, damned, no matter what happens. I have actually heard preachers use the trolley problem as an analogy for how penal substitutionary atonement works, which is to say that I've heard preachers confirm their ignorance of the problems of penal substitution, which I think is a an atonement theory rooted in monocausality. In this theological trolley problem, we are the bound-up people on the track, and God is the one standing by the lever, and what he does is he pulls the lever so that the train will ride over his son, who is on the side track. And all of this only really makes sense in a world of monocausality, but it causes, to my mind, more problems than it actually solves, since God is the one who causes, albeit slightly indirectly, the runaway trolley. If you end up in monocausality and thus dispose of the two orders of causality, you compromise on the innocence of God, which is to say that you end up with a God who is powerful, but certainly not not actually good. Evil is then no longer a consequence of the fragility of being and the election of nothingness over the true source of being. In other words, evil is no longer a no-thing, an absence of being, but is causally related to God's actions. Again, monocausality wouldn't work apart from a univocal posture towards being. By extension, the univocity of being also destroys the sacramental. No longer is God shining through all things, like light through a cathedral window, which would suggest God being qualitatively different from everything else. Rather, God is quantitatively different from everything else, albeit to a kind of infinite degree. According to the doctrine of analogy, if God is defined as omnipresent, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, and omniscient, it means that the quality of God's presence, power, goodness, and knowledge is certainly superior to our own, but nevertheless very different from our own, even inconceivably different. According to the university of being, though, the same definition of God must mean that God has more presence, more power, more goodness, and more knowledge than we do. And while it is difficult to conceive of God as absolutely other, while being the most intimate other, the problems of assuming that God is merely a kind of divine ubermensch or superbeing are, I think, far more abundant. You'll be pleased to know, I think, that I'm not going to go into all of the implications of the university of being here, but I do want to name a few things uh, that I think are particularly pertinent to our understanding of this criminal investigation. First, given its trend towards monocausality, it becomes easier to conceive of God in terms of will and power rather than as love. Um, this is something that I'm going to come back to in a later episode. Second, and in keeping with this, the idea that being is a gift given at every moment is rendered implausible. Third, if God is merely a being among other beings, he is more like Santa Claus than the transcendent. And it becomes easier in the modern era to speak of proving God in the way that we might prove that wine contains tannins or that my hamburger patty is made of real beef. Fourth, and somewhat surprisingly, the university of being opens up the way to speak of being equivocally, meaning that since university assumes a radical difference between God and everything else, and between everything else and everything else, there is ultimately no true connection between things. 
God might be of the same reality, but he functions very differently. So we end up with something along the lines of a scenario of us trying to conceive of God the way that a snail would try and conceive of us. There is an unbridgeable distance. In other words, it is precisely the univocal stance that opens up the way for radical skepticism, radical relativism, and the endless tussle between the modern and the postmodern. I'm neither a modernist nor a postmodernist, uh, because I think both ways of seeing are ultimately deeply flawed. And then lastly, the university of being opens up a way for something of a violent ontology. That is, the perspective that holds that reality is fundamentally divisive and violent. Now, of course, we can debate whether university is truer than analogy, and in that debate, I will naturally side with analogy. But even before we get there, we can begin to understand how university leads to the normalization of disunity. It takes that which is most intimate, namely God, and situates him in a scheme that resists both his nearness and creation's dependence upon his nearness. It takes whatever hope we might have of an ontological and theological anchor and makes it semantically questionable, which is why university is closely allied to something called nominalism, which we will get to in the next episode. Even if you can find a way to get poor John Dunn's SCOTUS off the hook on this front, it seems to me that his university of being, while brilliant in some ways, costs us more than it gives us. It's one nail in the coffin of belief in God, and it's certainly, in my estimation, one of the reasons that the Queen has gone into hiding. But of course, our story is just getting started, and in the next episode, I want to look at another theological villainy that ensured that the crime we're investigating would happen. You've all heard of Occam's razor, I'm sure. Well, the originator of that idea, William of Occam, is the one we're going to be speaking about. Not in full, obviously, but just one of his more worrying and problematic ideas, which is pretty much taken as gospel today. I hope you will join me for that. Until then, and well beyond then, however, my hope for you is that you will have a deep sense of the unity in being that transcends being itself, and that you will know intimately, much as you know the intimacy of your own breath, the Creator who is always unfailingly present to you, and me, and all of creation. Take care, everyone.